Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Max Tegmark will join us to discuss our mathematical universe. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, what is the nature of the universe, and what can math tell us about it? Joining us today to discuss this issue is our guest, Professor Max Tegmark. Professor Tegmark is an MIT physics professor who is co-author of more than 200 papers, 12 of which have been cited more than 500 times. He holds his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and he has written the new book, Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. And uh, Professor Tegmark, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. I'm honored to be on. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a, a fascinating book which you've written, Our Mathematical Universe, and which you talk about your personal quest for the sort of the nature of reality. I'm, I'm curious, why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write this book because I want to encourage people to really think big. I feel that uh, we humans have repeatedly underestimated not only the size of our, of our cosmos, again and again and again, finding that everything we thought existed was just small part of something grander, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, a galaxy cluster, our universe, and maybe even various kinds of multiverse. But I feel we've also again and again underestimated the power of our human minds to understand all this. And um, I explore in this book in great detail why that might be, that we've actually been able to understand much more than we thought. So what got yourself interested in this as a kid, I was always fascinated by mysteries. I would uh, have a hard time getting up for school in the morning sometimes because I've been lying awake too late uh, reading detective novels. And eventually, it dawned upon me that physics was not the, the boring, most boring subject I thought I had in high school, which is what I sadly felt at the time. But the physics was actually a detective story, too, and then the greatest intellectual uh, adventure of all time. But physics was our attempt to understand, you know, what is this amazing reality that we're part of? How did it get here? How does it work? What's going to happen? What's our place in it? What can we do about it? And I, I feel that this um, intellectual adventure is just so exciting that uh, I wanted to share this quest for understanding with, with these readers. So if anyone out there wants to uh, join me and read this book, it won't be just my quest, but, but our quest. Well, we all sort of have a sense of what reality is, but fundamentally, what is reality? <laughs> the one thing I, I feel we've learned for sure from uh, our uh, attempts at science so far, you know, during the thousands of years that the humans have pondered this, is that whatever the ultimate nature of reality is, it's really very different from how we, how we first thought. As I already mentioned, we've been kind of blown away by how much bigger things are than we thought they would be. But I also think the, the cavemen you know, looked at the stars 
50,000 years ago, you know, they probably spent more time doing that than we do because they didn't have television. They, they undoubtedly also wondered about what was out there and, and had these myths they came up with. I think they were just as smart as us. But I think some of them felt at the same time a little bit melancholy, feeling that they would never be able to know at all. And, and yet now we're so bombarded with facts and knowledge about this that we almost take it for granted. And the, the fundamental reason that we humans have been so surprisingly, surprisingly effective in figuring stuff out is not just because of our, because our minds and our imagination are awesome, but also because nature has turned out to be filled with these remarkable mathematical patterns and shapes and irregularities, which when we find them, give us enormous power to predict things and, and to develop technology to help us shape our world. And uh, to me, this is not something we should just take for granted and say, oh, of course, there are all these mathematical regularities. I think it's a very interesting question in and of itself. Why is this? Already in ancient Greece, Pythagoras and others marveled about that there was something kind of mathematical about our world. And, and then Galileo, during the Renaissance, wrote famously that our universe is like a book written in the language of mathematics. And, and since then, it's just been piling on more and more, you know, the, the planet Neptune, the radio wave, the Higgs boson, all of these great discoveries were were predicted through mathematics. And uh, why is this? Uh, this is where it gets really controversial. What, what is the controversy? Some people will argue that, well, you know, that's just the way it is. It doesn't really mean anything, and, and we shouldn't ask this question. Then I have a lot of, uh, of physics colleagues who... Uh, Think it means that nature is, for some reason, uh, at least in some regards, approximately described by math, but it's still kind of unclear, you know, what, what to make of it. And, and uh, I also explore in my book the opposite extreme of this. Maybe it really does mean something very fundamental. Maybe it actually means that nature is truly mathematical in some some deep sense. And it's well known in math that you can often approximate some complicated math with some simpler math. So if nature really has only mathematical properties fundamentally, then maybe what we have been doing throughout the history of physics is just gradually finding better and better math approximations to the true math, you know, to the correct theory of, of quantum gravity that's still eluding us to this day or, or whatever else there is there. And if this is wrong, this idea, then physics is ultimately doomed because there's going to be a roadblock well hit when there just are no more of these patterns and regularities for us to discover and we'll make no further progress. But but if I'm right about this, it's actually very encouraging because then there is no roadblock. There is nothing that's fundamentally off limits for our, our human understanding. You know, we might not ultimately be clever enough to, to figure it out, but we have the potential to and our ability to ultimately understand our world and shape it for the better with, with, with technology is only going to be limited by our own imagination. The idea is that we just really haven't hit upon what is the math that is the universe, and uh, we're just sort of been approximating, but eventually we will figure out what the universe is. Well, I think of it a little bit as uh, humans have been on a, on, a scout, on a treasure hunt here where we keep finding more of these mathematical gems that, that are extremely powerful and useful for us. In the, in the early days of physics, the only thing we could really predict pretty good was motions of things like the planets in the sky and, and that was what sort of ushered in classical mechanics newton and all that good stuff but people still figured at that time that, that we you know we'll never be able to understand for example how light works 
or why some things are hard and some things are soft through math. And then we got the Maxwell equations, which is what my next MIT course is about this this thing, which showed, which played light, electricity, and magnetism, and really helped usher in the industrial revolution. And then we got quantum mechanics, which beautiful mathematics, explaining how the micro world works and why some things are hard and why things are soft and why matter has the properties it does and how you can build computers, lasers, and cell phones. And there's less and less in our world that is now still uh, sort of in the mystery category that we have no clue quite how to cope with it. There, there are still plenty of mysteries remaining. You know, we have no idea what 95% of the matter in our universe is made out of. We're grappling to try to understand more what we, are, what we are, how consciousness works, and so on. We don't know for sure how our universe got started, or if it even did, or what the ultimate fate of it is. But fact that one thing after another that people said we could never do has gradually actually yielded to, to ingenious cleverness and to, to experiments and to mathematical analysis. I think it's very encouraging, and, and uh, you know, there's no better way to fail at anything in life than to convince yourself that it's impossible and therefore (laughs) never ever try. And I think this idea that in principle can understand all these things is an empowering feeling because it suggests that if we're going to fail at it, at least we should try our best and uh, and go down swinging. Ideas you discuss in your book is about your mathematical universe hypothesis is this notion of multiverses and how your hypothesis might imply that uh, a certain type of multiverse might exist. I'm wondering if you could talk a little about that. That's a really fun question. How big is reality, really? The humans have long had this sort of arrogant tendency to put ourselves in the cent- on center stage and say that, you know, oh, it could just be uh, Earth, must be in the middle of everything, and there can't be more. So it's not... A- crazy idea to think that maybe even though we can only see a finite amount of space, you know, what, what we call our universe is not all of space. It's simply the spherical region of space from which light has had time to get here so far during the 13.8 billion years. 13.8 billion years is a big thing. It's not crazy to think that any space continues beyond that. All universes that we have no access to at the moment, even mm-hmm. with our best telescopes. Uh, is this science or is this just flaky metaphysics or, or philosophy? Well, actually, it's very important to remember that parallel universes are not a theory. They're predictions of certain theories, which in turn are actually testable and, and falsifiable. For example, Einstein's theory of, of general relativity, one of the most successful theories ever, right? It, it predicts a whole bunch of stuff that we can measure, like the motion of mercury and the bending of, of light by gravity and so on. So we take it seriously. But it also predicts one thing that we can never test, namely what happens after you fall into a black hole. Because you can't come back on, on your science show afterwards and report what happened, because you can't get out. But we take that seriously also, because we took the theory seriously. And um, if someone doesn't like that untestable prediction, they have to come up with a different mathematical theory. Let's say Einstein is wrong, and there are no black holes, and a theory that can still explain everything else Einstein did. And that's really hard. No one is really convincingly succeeded. And the analogy here is we have a theory known as inflation, pioneered by Alan Guth and others, which is the most successful theory we have for putting the bang into our big bang and explaining how things started out. It's made a bunch of predictions that we've now tested very carefully, most recently with the Planck satellite that took these awesome baby pictures of how our universe looked when it was only 400,000 years old and the data was released just last year. 
and it works great. That's made this become the most accepted theory so far for our Big Bang. That doesn't prove it's right, but it means we have to take seriously also its other predictions. And it actually generically predicts that space is much bigger than the part of space that we can see, we call our universe, and uh, generically even infinitely big. And this gives us what I call the level one multiverse in our book. All these other universe-sized regions of space, we have no, no access to, but it could contain people and galaxies and planets just like us. And um, interestingly, that's not the only example in physics where some pretty serious theory like this has predicted that reality is bigger than the part that, that we can observe. When you combine inflation theory with, with string theory, which is our most popular but also controversial attempt to understand the basic building blocks of things, it gives you an even bigger reality known as the level two multiverse. And using this kind of ideas, the famous uh, Steven Weinberg once predicted that uh, there should be this weird substance, dark energy, which uh, there should be a lot more of than ordinary stuff. And this was largely ignored for many years because people thought the whole idea of the level two multiverse sounded kind of nutty until it was discovered. And uh, we got the Nobel Prize in physics a few years ago. And then history repeated itself again. We have the best and most successful theory for the, the micro world that we just talked about, quantum mechanics, which underpins all, all cell phones and computer technology and internet and so on. It's governed by this equation, the Schrodinger equation, which says that all these particles that make up you and me and everything else, they can actually be in multiple places at once. Well, that suggests if you take it literally, we too can be in several places at once. And when you work through the math, what happens is it predicts that... Um, Sometimes our reality can branch out into more than one reality that become unaware of each other. And it's a pretty dizzying and, and crazy sounding idea, but uh, at the same time, an idea which might enable really useful technology. Right now, there's a huge multi-million dollar effort around the world to build quantum computers, which try to tap in to this larger reality, this parallel world to run, basically speaking, the ultimate parallel computation. And it, we don't know yet, of course, if all of this is correct and if these machines are going to work. But if you can build a quantum computer that can solve a math problem that would take longer than the age of the universe, just ordinary computer we can do, and it can do it in five minutes, then it becomes a little harder to deny that somehow uh, those other parallel worlds where it ostensibly did the calculations are real. And, and conversely, if, if you try to build a machine like that and it actually just fails, that would rule out that this simple quantum mechanics equation is the final story, and, and it would kill off all these parallel universes. So, so we're at a very interesting juncture, I think, where there is obviously some reality out there, right? and people have often taken for granted well, some kind of law of nature that it's guaranteed that we humans should be able to see all of it. And it really might not be that way at all. We might only, be, we only have access to a small part of the ever much grander reality. What would this imply, really, for what we call our particular universe and our, our place in it? First of all, when I was a grad student, we used to argue about whether our universe was 10 billion years old or 20 billion years old. And now, we've gotten so much better data from fantastic telescopes and other experiments that we've shifted to arguing about whether it's 13.7 billion years old or 13.8 billion years old. So the questions have shifted from being largely philosophical to being actually real science questions where we can measure things. We still have 
very shaky idea of how things started out. The inflation theory I mentioned is the most, um, most popular theory so far, but there's some very exciting upcoming measurements that are going to happen this year and next year that might test or rule out that idea. We have a very good idea what happened after the or first instance, though, for the, during the next 13.7 billion years, because we can basically see that with our telescopes. And as we look to the future, we thought <laughs> it was going to be simple. We thought things were either that our universe would just keep expanding forever or come crashing back on itself with a big crunch, just depending on how much stuff there was, how much whether the gravity could pull everything together. But that turned out to be wrong, you know, that we've discovered that actually most of the stuff is made of dark energy, and we have no idea what that is. So the quest to understand the dark energy is basically the same quest to understand our ultimate future. And there's a very exciting experiment going on also to try to, with nearby measurements here, sort that out. Finally, I think another conclusion we can draw about our place in all this is as we started discovering that everything was bigger and bigger and bigger than we thought, we humans... I think naturally started feeling smaller and smaller and less and less significant. But I actually argue in the book, and this is just based on my personal experience, that it's, that it's kind of the other way around also. Because again, as I said in the beginning, we haven't just underestimated the size of the cosmos, but also the power of our minds to, to figure stuff out. And, you know, we, yes, you know, you and I are much smaller than a star. But actually, your brain is vastly more complicated and interesting than a star. And the star has been showing no indication of being conscious either. And if, if, if we, with our consciousness, look at star- galaxies out there and think that they're beautiful, then why are the galaxies beautiful? It's just because somebody is conscious and aware of them, right? If, if there were no consciousness in the universe, it would just be a giant waste of space, as far as I'm concerned. And even though it's often taken as almost a, a given that there must be all those aliens out there that are going to bail us out if, if we humans screw up and annihilate ourselves on this planet. There's really, I talked about this in the book, very shaky evidence for that also. So if you, if you consider for a moment that um, life might be very rare, then uh, it could very well be that what happens we do here on our little planet is actually the most meaningful thing going on in our whole universe. And that it's not that our universe is giving meaning to us, but that we humans are giving meaning to our universe. And uh, I think that's actually... a uh, should make us feel very significant and it should also make us think big and ask, you know, what can we do to um, be better stewards of our planet and try to make sure we don't just uh, accidentally annihilate ourselves. I think I think we're doing a very sloppy job, honestly, being uh, stewards of our, of our planet. There, there are more people on this planet who have heard of Justin Bieber than have heard of Vasily Arkhipov, even though these two guys... Justin Bieber is not the one who single-handedly stopped a uh, Soviet nuclear attack during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And to me, that's seriously screwed up priorities. Now, that, that we don't think these really important things that are happening, where we don't pay very much attention to. We are trading new technologies, of course, don't just create wonderful opportunities for ourselves. We also create all these new risks that uh, I feel you know don't get enough attention. So part of it is very much an encouragement of us all to try to appreciate how special life might really be, how much power we actually have to, to understand our world and, and make it better. There's no law of physics either that says that life can't in principle spread this planet and into the cosmos, right? So what we do here in our lifetime might conceivably be even the most important and meaningful 
decision that will ever take place in the history of, of our cosmos. And I don't want people to feel powerless and insignificant. I want people to you know, really try to make a difference. Well, I think that's really a, a very uh, laudable goal, and I think a very empowering vision for our place in the universe. I want to mention that we've been talking with Professor Max Tegmark. Professor Tegmark is a professor of physics at the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His new book is entitled Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. And Professor Tegmark, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time today to speak with us here on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much. It's uh, been a great pleasure and an honor. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.